And that's the problem. That's actually one of the key problems with touchscreens. Ultimately, it's an electrical thing. It's, a, it's, it's detecting the touch through electricity, but it's got to be see-through at the same time. And most electrical conductors are not see-through. Welcome to It's a Material World, the show that uncovers why material science will change the world. With your hosts, David Ye and Puniku Pavia. Before we get into the episode, I just wanted to mention that we created a free professional development guide for MSCs, which you can find in the show notes below. And without further ado, let's get started. Today's sponsor is MatMatch. With MatMatch, you can find materials for your projects in the free database of thousands of metals, polymers, composites, and ceramics. For example, you could search based on a given mechanical property, such as hardness or tensile strength, or simply search by name to find more information about a specific material. You could also find and contact suppliers if you have questions about a certain material, and join more than 2 million engineers and designers who use MatMatch every year. To join, simply go to matmatch.com and start searching for free today. Hey everyone, we are very excited to introduce today's guest, Dr. Marty Jobson, a science TV presenter, communicator, and self-proclaimed science geek. Marty has been involved with science television in many different ways over a 20-year span, from presenting to prop building to directing, producing, and more. He also performs hair-rising science on stage at science festivals across the UK, and he's authored three books, including The Science of Everyday Life and The Science of Food. On the topic of everyday life, we have brought on Marty to discuss the materials found in your smartphone. So we're very excited to have you, Marty. That's uh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me along. Awesome. So yeah, we're really excited to talk to you today about materials in our smartphones. But first, we are really curious because we haven't really talked to anyone who's in science communication. So what drew you to this field? And since it's vital for everyone to develop as a good communicator if they want to be successful. What advice do you have for young scientists or engineers about effectively communicating or effectively telling a story? That's quite interesting, actually. That you used a word there that's very key. You used the word story because that's what communication is about. It's about telling stories. And uh, I realised that that was going to be the thing that I liked doing. Many years ago, I did a PhD in... Um, uh, it's actually in plant cell biology. I'm a plant cell biologist by training, but that was so long ago. It's sort of it's slightly irrelevant, really. And at the end of my PhD, I realised actually this is not going to be my thing. I'm not going to be a research scientist, but actually I'm quite good at telling the stories of science, and I'm quite good at that communication bit of it. So I went off and became a science communicator, and that was more years ago than I care to remember. And ever since then, I've been, as you say in the introduction, thank you very much, I've been doing all sorts of things, and it all falls under the same category. It all falls under science communication, it's a, and that's about telling stories. And if you're a, a sort of a, an early stage scientist, whatever that is, whether that's an engineer or a research scientist or a, whatever it is, then... Learning to tell stories is how you learn to communicate. I mean, you know, I can talk about that for hours just on its own, but the very basics is, I mean, and probably one of the most important things is you've got to learn when you can and when you can't step outside your comfort zone and when, how much do you need to know to be able to talk about stuff? And one of the things that you often hear when you talk to 
people, if I do training in communication stuff, which I do quite a lot of, people say, oh, I, I can't talk about that. I don't know about that. Well, I'm here on a you know material science podcast, <laughs> and my my scientific training is in plant cell biology and microscopy. But I know, and I've picked up enough, and I I talk to people about material science all the time. You know, I know more than they do, and that's all you need to know to be able to tell the story. And then it's about learning how to tell the story, how to structure a narrative, and how to get that across in a kind of an entertaining way. There's a lot to it, shall we say. Um, it takes practice. And I mean, basically, you, you just need to get up there and do it. Um, some people are great at it. Some people get it. Some people struggle with it. But, you know, the more practice you have at this sort of thing and you go and watch people who are good at it and learn from other people who can do these things. Those are my top tips. So, yeah, don't be too precious uh, about your science. You know, just get in there, talk to people, practice and learn from others. Those are the things I would do. So, Marty, how do you balance the idea of like backing up your story with data and proof versus just like explaining the why? Because I know that's a big thing in science communication specifically. You have to be a generalist if you're going to be. I mean, some some people who go into science communication, you know, they, they talk about one thing is the thing they're good at. You know, you, you get the standard sort of, you know, the, the professor that goes off and becomes a TV presenter or something. You know, they have a speciality. And, you know, they will do that thing and that's what they become known for. And they continue kind of in the research side of things. But for someone like me, I'm more of a generalist. So I have a very broad understanding of science. I always was a generalist. You know, the PhD was an aberration, quite frankly. You know, I studied all sorts of things. I studied material science at university. I studied physics and chemistry and uh, and maths and, you know, weird things with the medics, you know, pathology and stuff like that. But it's having that, it's being able to talk about a broad range of things and having a breadth and then having an interest and being able to sort of, you know, understand that stuff. And if you've got that breadth, then you can usually, especially when if it's the general public, you can talk to them with a degree of confidence. And it's about understanding. And, you know, I, I sometimes I take my talks. I remember I did a, I did, I do a talk all about microscopy and I'm talking about you know, this is a mostly um, biological microscopy. And I ended up at some the, one of the, the Europe's biggest microscopical congresses talking to them about it. And that's fine. And it's just about finding where you, where your information can overlap with that audience's interest, I guess. And then, you know, presenting that without kind of making stuff up. <laughs> Which can sometimes, sometimes... You make mistakes and you get corrected at the end of a talk and you're like, fine, that's fine. That's that's okay. I've made a mistake. I will learn. You get somebody coming up to you afterwards and saying, yeah, you said that thing. That's not true. <laughs> and you go, okay, note to self. And then you check it afterwards because, you know, just because somebody tells you it's not true doesn't mean it's not true. Yeah, true. <laughs> and so were you always this good at public speaking? I think that almost most scientists and engineers I know go into engineering because they don't have to talk in front of lots of people <laughs> so i guess like could you explain like were you this good or if you weren't how'd you get this good i i wasn't no i was kind of the the fat shy kid at school who did all the sciences it was really good at science and kind of you know it was top of science that was my kind of thing the nerdy kid at school and then i went off and um realized that there was sort of more to it than that and i enjoyed you know kind of being you know, telling stories and being, uh, and then I ended up 
you know, just tried out doing science talks at a science centre where, where I was doing my PhD in Norwich in the UK. And I just, I just, I just liked it. And it's, it's about having the confidence to be relaxed in front of an audience. And the rest is kind of history, which is quite complicated, but it's there. You know, I went off and did a lot of telly stuff behind the camera and ended up in front of the camera and did a lot of stuff on in in the UK on sort of the primetime telly stuff. And, you know, it's about honing a craft in the end. And I call myself a performer now, primarily. That's how I think of myself as it, you know, I'm a performer, but I'm just talking about a very specific thing. But it's the same, you know, I, I when I, you know, the sort of people I look to that inspire me these days are, you know, street artists, you know, people juggling on the, the street and you, you can see them and you can learn from those guys or people on stage and artists on stage. You know, there's all sorts you can learn and you can bring that into the, to the communication. But how you get good at it, well, some people do and some people don't like it. And sometimes it's just a matter of what, what you're good at naturally and knowing that that's what you're good at and doing what you're good at. I mean, it's not particularly helpful because sometimes I know that people, you know, they're like, you must go out there and talk in front of the crowd. <laughs> I don't want to, I hate it. <laughs> sometimes, you know, and we have to accept with each other that sometimes there are people who are better suited to doing that, which is why I have a job because people come to me to say, can you be the front man for our project? And I'm like, sure. What's it about? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. It's about pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. But since we'll, we'll start with the general stuff and we'll break it down by each subsystem, starting with the phone screen. So I was just wondering, can you talk us through the type of glass that is used in smartphones and how this may differ from other glasses in other applications like construction or packaging? So the glass in the, on, on your phone screen is quite specific. There's, there's a thing <laughs> called Gorilla Glass. I don't know if you've come across this. This was, I think it was Dow Corning actually invented it. And it's a fairly standard aluminosilicate, aluminosilicate glass, aluminium silicate glass. Let's we'll sort of <laughs> put it in the middle of the Atlantic, shall we? What it was actually Apple went to them and said, what we need is we need a, a glass that's going to be really scratch resistant, but also you know flexible enough that it's not going to break in half immediately. You put your phone in your back pocket and sit down, and cost-effective and all these sort of things. So um, they came up with uh, Gorilla Glass, which has been copied subsequently by other people. And basically what they do is they take they take a standard glass and they immerse it at sort of hundreds of degrees. I think it's like 400 degrees or something, Celsius that is, in liquid alkaline potassium bath. So molten, I assume it's potassium hydroxide or something, molten potassium hydroxide. And then what happens is you get exchanges between the sodium and the potassium ions. You get potassium in the surface, which then increases the volume, essentially, because potassium is a you know, bigger atom, so that you get an increased volume. So you get pre-stressed glass at the surface, which gives you basically toughened glass, but on a very, very thin sheet, which you can't do otherwise. So that's what makes this glass. I'm just looking at my, I've got an, an old iPad here. I'm looking at it and it's, despite being ancient, it's not actually got any scratches on it. It's about the only thing that hasn't broken on it. <laughs> Everything else has, but the glass is fine. It does, it does shatter if you, if you sort of whack it properly, but um, it's really remarkably tough when you consider sort of what 
you know, it goes in your pocket with keys and stuff like this, and it comes out fine. So um, that alone is a is is a fantastic piece of material science. But then, you know, you sort of go into the screen, and the screen itself is made of like dozens of layers. There's like layer upon layer upon layer of material in there. Yeah. Um, I, I want to go back to when I think I was like in middle school and I got my first phone and the touch screen was cutting edge back then, but it was absolutely <laughs> terrible. Uh, could you kind of talk to us about maybe what technology allows like touch screens with capacitive touch? And maybe if you know a little bit about it has improved quite a bit since uh, I was younger. So we'd love to hear about that next. Yeah. I mean, the very first touch screens before your time. I think you'll find <laughs> were literally they were kind of like two sheets of plastic with thin wires and when you touched them it literally where you touched it made the wires connect ah. and that was how you knew and it had like a terrible resolution because obviously you couldn't put too many wires in because <laughs> otherwise you couldn't see what was on the other side and that's the problem that's actually one of the key problems with touchscreens ultimately it's an electrical thing it's a it, it's detecting the touch through electricity but it's got to be see-through at the same time. And most electrical conductors are not see-through. In fact, it's a sort of a basic thing. If you think about things that are naturally just straight clear, you know, acrylic or glass, they are not made of metal elements. They're made of non-metal elements. And it's down to some of the specifics of the electron you know, structure of the different atoms that means that some things that are um, transparent tend to be non-metals. So having a conductive material that's also see-through is quite a challenge. And the way we get around it is these days we use a thing called capacitive touch. It's, it's, it turns your screen into essentially millions of capacitors. So a capacitor is, you know, it's a very simple electrical component. It's basically like a, a sort of a, a battery that kind of almost instantly discharges, charges and discharges. And what you're doing with your with your phone screen is as anything moves towards the phone screen and gets close to it, doesn't have to touch it even in some cases, but depending on the sensitivity, they have it turned down so that you do actually physically touch it. That changes the capacitance of a specific spot on the screen, or at least it allows us to detect that there is a change in capacitance at a point. And that's what we're picking up. And the only way we can do that is by having see-through conductive materials. And the one that everyone uses is a thing called indium tin oxide. So this relies on um, an element, um, it's about 75, so three quarters of, of its of indium tin oxide is indium. Indium, it's one of the metals, it's just below gallium, so aluminium, gallium, indium, it's just in that column. It's, what can I tell you about indium? It's, it was discovered in the mid, let me just see if I can get this right, I think it was 1860 something, by a couple of Germans. It's called indium because the colour in spectra is, there's a, a bright indigo line in the spectrum. I always assumed it was, it was from sort of India. because it was discovered in India. It's not. Um, although, of course, the word indigo comes from India because that's where the indigo dye came from originally, which is why it's called indigo. So it kind of goes back to India one way or the other. But anyway, <laughs> you know, it's a relatively um, relatively unusual element, but it's, but it's fairly abundant. It's about the same as silver. Anyway, so indium tin oxide takes the slightly unusual properties of indium because indium is sort of on the edge of being a non-metal 
it's sort of close to that boundary of metalloids. And if you add to it a little bit of tin and make a very thin coating and, some, and make it into an oxide, it's conductive, but very see-through. It, it's got a sort of a very high transmissibility, so it allows a lot of light through it. So we can do, we can coat glass with it and they, they vapor coat it. So under vacuum, uh, they create a vapor of indium tin oxide and that then settles onto the surface. And then what they can do is you can etch it with a laser. So you then you can etch it to create this, all the kind of the fine detail that you need. And that allows us then to create this capacitive touch system that we can detect exactly where you've touched the screen. There are alternatives, but they're not as good. Aluminium zinc oxide is the one that people tend to use otherwise, but it, it's quite sensitive to moisture. So if liquid or humidity even gets in, it oxidizes or reacts with the moisture and, you know, it loses its, its transmissibility and uh, conductivity. And it's also, it doesn't etch so well. So indium tin oxide is still the go-to at the moment. There are alternatives. Graphene is quite an interesting alternative, but that's still, you know, going to be quite a while, I suspect. But yeah, so that's how we do the capacitive touch with this funky combination of elements, indium tin oxide, which is one of the great things about, you know, the mobile phone. It's got these really unusual elements that you don't really see anywhere else actually in them. So that's that's capacitive touch for you. That's awesome. Yeah. So I think we've all been to a store that has like an iPad or something and it just doesn't line up where you touch it. Is that a failure of like the system reading the different points like incorrectly or the capacitance incorrectly? Or is that maybe some of the material has started to oxidize due to some of the errors that you're talking about? That's a good question. I suspect... I mean, the obvious answer is that it's some sort of software problem and that it just needs kind of recalibration. But it could be because the way I understand it, it's originally they you had literally kind of vertical lines of indium tin oxide strips and horizontal strips. And then by detecting the changing capacitance between you know, strip number 642 and row number 322 six and that gave you a point on the screen but now they don't do that they have a they have a better system which detects kind of the capacitance based on its distance from the corners essentially so it's possible that those detectors then go wrong it shouldn't oxidize or anything so it shouldn't chemically change unless you've done something horrible horrible to them and you know if it's just sat in a in a shop then it's probably just needs a reboot quite frankly let's face it so with the water resistance property being like more and more important in phones i was just wondering like in what situations would that alternative of like the, I think you said aluminum zinc oxide be used? Is it just being, is it like a cost factor? All I know is that it, it is a transparent conductor system, but it's not being used in phones. And I think actually what, what seems to kill it is the, the laser etching, because obviously it's all well and good sort of with the early systems, which were pretty crude, but these days you need such fine detail I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's a printed circuit board, isn't it? It's kind of like, it's not a printed circuit board, but it's an etched circuit board. So you're, you're layering this stuff on and then etching some of it away to create your circuit board, your see-through <laughs> circuit board on glass, which is, just blows my mind. That alone is amazing. And I think that's actually one of the restricting factors at the moment. And I mean, there's other technologies to say. I mean, graphene is the one that everyone gets excited about. 
And it's one of those sort of five-year technologies where everyone says, oh, five years. And then 10 years later, you ask them and they say five years. (laughs) And I've I've heard that from several people, you know, um, over the last 15 years. So I've yet to see a, you know, graphene. But graphene is really good because it's also very flexible. I mean, uh, indium is pretty flexible. So you can put it on a flexible plastic sheet. I've got some. And you can just bend it backwards and forwards and it seems to be fine. So yeah, graphene's graphene's the sort of the big hope for that. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, I've seen new generations of phones being like foldable. So well, all of that. I mean, then coming, I mean, you know, then you get into sort of hinges and things like that. And gosh, how you do that. Right. Whew, that's quite tricky. That <laughs> yeah, the whole five-year thing is nanotechnology in a nutshell. <laughs> So I guess we can now move on to, like you mentioned, the layer by layer, and we can talk about LCDs or liquid crystal displays. Yeah, I, I just remember looking at our phones like through microscopes in our lab classes, if you remember, David, and seeing those red, green, and blue pixels. So I was just wondering if you could uh, explain the science behind all that. Yeah, I mean, LCDs are fiendishly complicated, actually. So <laughs> yeah, I'll try and do this briefly, but basically it relies on polarized light. And that's the first thing you've got to get your head around. So I'm going to jump to the assumption that people know what polarised light is and that light has, you know, is a wave. I mean, it's a particle as well, but let's not go there. It's a wave (laughs) and it has a directionality. It can have, you know, you can have vertically polarised or horizontally polarised. So you take two polarised sheets and you cross polarise. So you put one at 90 degrees to the other. So the first sheet, light passes through it and is, say, vertically polarised. The second sheet it hits is uh, horizontally polarised, so no light goes through it, so it's black. So you, observing on the other side, see nothing through it. Now, if you put something crystalline between those two sheets, something weird happens, because crystals, if they're the right thickness and the right sort, so sucrose is particularly good, sucrose works really nicely, it causes the polarised light to twist as the polarised light goes through the ordered array of atoms. And you, if you get it right, a 90 degree twist. So that if the light goes through vertically polarised, then through a crystal, it becomes horizontally polarised. And then through the next polariser, it goes through the next polariser because the next polariser was horizontal. So now you can see light coming through because the crystal bends it. So what you do is you put in a hydrocarbon in the gap between your two polarisers, which is a liquid crystal. Basically, all that means is it's the hydrocarbons that have three elements to them. Top element is a rigid, flat sort of structure made from benzene rings. And that will arrange itself, if just left on its own, into a sort of a crystalline array because it's sort of got a structure. And then you've got a wiggly tail at the bottom, which is the bit that makes it liquid, I guess, and not very polarised. And then at the top, you have a charged particle, usually a nitrogen or something like that. So you put that in between your polarizers. It forms a crystalline structure. So light can pass through it. Or rather, when light goes through it, it twists, which means that your sandwich polarizers, crystalline, liquid crystal, and then another polarizer, light passes through. Now, if you now apply a voltage to that liquid crystal, because it's charged, it messes up the crystal structure. So the whole thing breaks down and suddenly it goes black because you've messed up the crystal structure and the light's no longer being twisted. So now what you have is you have essentially a light shutter that you can turn on and off 
with a switch, right? So what your phone has is at the back, right at the back of the screen, there is a flat LED, right? It's quite a complicated structure in itself, but anyway, it's basically a flat sheet of light that's on permanently, which is by the way, why it doesn't matter what you're showing on your screen, it, it drains the battery really quickly because that light is on, the whole screen is illuminated. And then over the top of that, you've got millions and millions of tiny little shutters that can be individually opened and closed by just applying a current. And of course, to get the current to the individual shutters, you need a see-through conductor, which can be laser etched. So we're back to indium tin oxide. So indium tin oxide is crucial for that as well, some ways more so even than the, the capacitive touch. So you now have a sort of an incredibly complicated series of shutters. You can turn them on and off individually, and you've got a screen. The colour that you're seeing, as you said, when in your lab, when you look at it, is basically on top of that. There's another layer, <laughs> a sort of a printed out layer of different elements that give you the colour filters. And the elements they use there, there's some crazy things in there. There's like dysprosium, prysodymium, europium, turbinium, all sorts of like really crazy rare earth elements that are used to create those colours specifically. And that's the screen. I mean, just so just that alone, that bit of your phone is the most fantastic taken together as sort of a sandwich of many, many layers. The most unbelievable technology goes into that. Uh, and some of the material science alone there, you know, the different elements that you're using, and each one is there for a specific reason. But I didn't realize that we always had the light on. I thought that they could have made something to like maybe keep it off more, but no wonder <laughs> my phone keeps on dying. Yeah, that's no, good. And it's also why if you look at your phone and you're wearing um, polarized sunglasses, it just doesn't look very bright because the light that's coming through is polarized. The light that you're looking at is already polarized. And if you turn the phone through 90 degrees, it quite often becomes brighter or darker one way or the other. So you can sort of move your phone around and you get get another kind of cross-polar effect going on. <laughs> so you have to take your glasses off to be able to see your phone properly. Well, I do, but that's maybe just me. My favorite application of polarizations with like sunglasses, like you were saying, that they can be polarized. You can test whether you have polarized glasses or not if you have one, and then you just put them 90 degrees to each other. And it's basically just a larger version of what's happening in your phone. And if they're both polarized and you can't see anything, but if only one is or neither are, you can see through both. So I think that's just a really cool like blown out version of what's happening like a million times on your phone screen right there i mean this is why i got into this subject because so what i do is I, I do a sort of a talk about material science but actually what happened was i was given because i'm a i'm a zeiss ambassador so i i work with zeiss who make microscopes a german company who make these amazing microscopes and i was doing all this stuff on plant science and biology and i wanted to do some stuff on material science uh, so I upgraded my microscope so that I could do polarized microscopy, which is beautiful and fantastic and, you know, used in a lot of material science applications because you can tell a lot by looking at the reflected, usually the reflected for material science, the reflected polarized light by just putting some polars, cross polars in, but you can also do it. And there's all sorts of things. I mean, as I say, sugar is really nice. Aspirin crystals give fantastic effects if through cross polars under a microscope but yeah it's a really good simple thing to show people and it always gets it's interesting something that always gets a ooh-ah <laughs> if you show an audience i've got these two really big sheets sort of a4 sheets of polarized material 
and you just hold one up, hold two up in front of you and then just rotate one and it goes black. And people just, uh, you know, it blows people's minds when they see that because it just is an amazing thing. And then you have to explain. It's quite difficult to explain. I think <laughs> I did that sufficiently briefly, but not without jumping too many um, steps. Aren't there also like privacy screen protectors? Do they work in the same way where it's like seeing it from one angle, you, you can't really see someone's screen, but if you look at it head on, then you can see it just fine? Yeah. I'm trying to think, I know I've looked at some of these and I think the way they work is they essentially work in the same way. They're just really big LCD screens. So there's just a massive LCD screen with like a a liquid crystal in between two sheets of glass, which have polarizers. And depending on whether you were applying or taking off the current, if you just switch one of the polar filters through 90 degrees, then you can change whether it's on or off that makes it go black. But if that makes sense, if you think about it. So you can have these sort of massive sheets and then you just kind of press a button and it bing, goes dark. Or they can use them if they, I've seen a system where you can buy by just basically putting on a piece of polarizing filter that's cut to a shape of a logo, for example, you can press a button and a logo appears on a sheet of glass and you press another button and it goes off. So you can, you know, you can, or you can have multiple ones if you're clever, you know, you can do all sorts of clever things with it. But moving on, uh, the next area or subgroup that we want to talk about is inner electronics. So elements like gold, silver, platinum, and tungsten are often used in the wiring in the circuitry of the phone. What properties make these metals the optimal choice, despite we all know how much gold and silver costs, but platinum and tungsten are also very expensive as well? Yeah, it all comes down to, often with this, it comes down to sort of, I mean, obviously you need something that's super good at conducting electricity you want something that's a really good electrical conductor and most people just assume that you know it's a metal it's going to be good at conducting electricity and that's not true you know not all metals are equal in their ability to conduct electricity gold silver you know these are good metals at conducting electricity and copper is the other one that's obviously really good but it does oxidize and you know the noble metals gold and silver and platinum the reason we use them is because they don't oxidize so especially for connecting the really fine components, you know, stuff within microchips, basically soldering microchips to the substrate that they're then sitting on so they can then communicate with the rest of the circuit board. That needs to be super fine and super conductive, but also not degrading in any way, because even the tiniest amount of degradation of performance will impact what's happening because they're so, so tiny So they've got to be sort of perfect and stay perfect, which is why we tend to use those. And I mean, things like tungsten, tungsten's, I mean, tungsten's just like super high temperature stuff, generally speaking. So if it's going to get hot, you don't want it degrading with any temperature stuff. So that's where that comes in. But generally speaking, that's where we're using those precious metals in that, those sort of traditional precious metals like gold and silver. And they get brought in for that reason. So it's it's as simple as that. And the fact that they're really good conductors. Got it. And so you, speaking of tungsten, one thing I wanted to briefly discuss is the idea of conflict minerals like tantalum and cobalt that are mined in nations with just awful working conditions. I was just wondering if you could speak to this more and maybe give your thoughts on ways that we could potentially build a more ethical supply chain. Oh, gosh. <laughs> that was a loaded question. <laughs> yeah, just make it easy for me. Um, so, yeah, there's a thing called conflict elements. And basically a conflict element is, or a conflict ore, 
as in O-R-E, is something that is mined in an area of conflict and the mining of which is used to fund that conflict. The example I often go to is, I'd like to say, I hesitate to say it's my favourite example because it's not something anyone should have a favourite of, but is tantalum, as you mentioned. So tantalum is super important in capacitors. It makes the best capacitors. Just because of its electrical properties, it makes the best capacitors and all the little capacitors that you have on a circuit board, the teeny tiny little things, surface mounted components, will have tantalum in them. Uh, 60% of tantalum produced currently in the world it comes from an ore that's mined out of the ground with a bunch of other things. And it's actually quite difficult to extract, but it comes primarily from the Democratic Republic of Congo and neighboring Rwanda and Burundi. And if you know anything about Africa, you'll know that the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, has has had a horrible, horrible civil war raging for, gosh, I can't remember how long it is. It's just been going forever. It's, you know, decades or something horrible like that. And it's, it's I think it's, it's currently the most deadly conflict on the planet, by which I mean mo- more people have died in this conflict, you know, that is taking place currently than anywhere else. And both sides of the conflict are using the mining of tantalum ore as a source of income. Hooray, that makes everyone feel better about everything, doesn't it? Um, So, you know, what do we do? We need tantalum for all our electrical devices because we need capacitors. We could find tantalum from other sources. There are other places you can get tantalum ore. I mean, that's one of these things, you know, this is to do with, you know, where these resources actually sit. This is geopolitics now we're talking about. You could just go and find it somewhere else. But clearly, the stuff that comes out of the ground in in the DRC is probably the best source of tantalum, and it makes it economic. So that gives us an economic incentive to get it out there. Of course, if we just stopped using, if we said, no, we're not going to, we're going to boycott this, we're not going to take it from there. Well, ultimately, that also impacts the people of the DRC and the surrounding areas, because, you know, whilst it is funding a conflict, it's also funding people's lives. You know, this is this is people's bread and butter and it might be horrible conditions and stuff, but it's still their only job and they're presumably getting paid something for it. So it's it's difficult. There's, there isn't an easy answer. Is I'm sorry, there isn't. I don't have a magic bullet here. One of the answers is that we need to create a circular economy. We need to have a donut economy. We need to take the tantalum that's already in the system, so to speak, you know, the stuff that's in your you know, your mobile phones right now, the stuff that's in your computer and not throw it away and not put it back in the ground. We've already dug it out once. Let's keep it in the system. Let's let's find a way to be economical about this. And the obvious way to do that is to not throw it away in the first place to, and you know, it's the old reduce, reuse, recycle. So send it to somebody else, recycle your electronics. Do you need that new phone? Do you need that new computer. If you do, well, make sure your old one goes to somebody else who can use it for a bit longer. From the recyclability standpoint, since there are just so many different elements in your smartphone, like how easy or difficult is it to be able to recycle the components of it? It's really difficult at the moment with phones. And there is a lot of pressure at the moment from all sorts of groups to to really move towards a sort of a joined up sensible. I mean, it just makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, why would, 
I mean, I'm looking over here at my, my iPhone. The battery's a bit knackered. It's not a new iPhone. I've had it for quite a while. And I'm constantly charging it. You know, it doesn't last a day without having to recharge. And we all know, you're, all shaking, you're both shaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we all know this. We all have this. And iPhones are the worst culprits at this because at least most Android phones, you can just pop the battery out and put a new one in. I don't know if you've ever tried changing a battery on an iPhone. I once did this with an old iPhone I was giving to one of my kids. It was terrifying. You had to sort of prize the screen up at a kind of a worrying kind of screen, bend it up and get a kind of a, a plastic doodad that they sent me in a kit and kind of prize this thing off. And it was just, I was terrified that any moment now the whole thing was going to just shatter into a thousand pieces. And then the screws, you get these tiny screws, which are like dust, which are literally like some <laughs> sort of little little puff of metal that you could just, just you know, just breathe a little heavily and it disappear into the carpet and you never find it again. And it was just terrifying. Um, and there's, as you well know, there's, there's a sort of a cottage industry out there of people changing iPhone batteries, which completely nullifies all your warranty, but it's the only way you can upgrade your battery. So wouldn't it be good if somebody just put a screw on the back that you could undo that enabled me to change the battery? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great if we could have a phone where, oh, you know, I could pop the camera out and just pop a new one in when they develop a new camera or, or a chip set, you know, just take out the chip set. And actually, if you open up a phone, a lot of stuff you can sort of dismantle a bit and you can pull out the little connectors and you can unscrew things. And, you know, and there are moves again, there are kind of there are people pushing to have systems which are, you know, upgradable, self upgradable. And the dream is to have a phone where, you know, you you just literally you subscribe to a, a package and, you know, they send you the new chipset once a year and you just boop, pop it open and pop the new chipset in and send the old one back in a, you know, a self-addressed envelope. And they use it to build phones for somebody else. You know, that's what we should be doing. So the best you can do is at least recycle your phone rather than chucking it away. Or worse, just leaving it in the drawer and not doing anything with it because then it becomes redundant and you know you've just wasted two years of its life by having it sat at the back of your drawer when we talk about these complex minerals tantalum tungsten cobalt if you go up to a random person on the street i would almost guarantee you that not everybody knows where they're from or what they do so as science or engineers and especially maybe as you're a science communicator how do we bring about light into these materials or minerals that no one has ever heard of before, really? You do what I do, which is I go and talk to people about this stuff. I go and, you know, tell people the stories about, you know, what's in your phone. And you've got to make it you've got to make it grabby, because if you if you sort of say I'm going to give a talk about kind of why we're all doomed, <laughs> you probably get a few, but you won't get many. <laughs> get a few goths you won't get many people coming to that talk and if you're trying to talk to say a younger audience as well you've lost them already you've got to make your message interesting but at the same time you can approach these things you know even young kids will are willing to hear this story especially these days i go and talk to primary school kids about this stuff and i just make sure i'm not too kind of heavy on it you know, I don't want to, you know, depress them all and have them all, you know, doom, doom um, laden uh, when they go home. They want to they want to have fun. They want to see something they remember. But you can just drop in a little bit of the message about, you know, 
circular economy and recycling stuff. But, you know, these days, especially as everybody's so kind of aware of what we're doing to the environment, whether it's, you know, sort of climate change or whether it's what mobile phones and what we're doing to sort of, you know, digging things out of the ground. I think it's a story that people are want to hear. So you've just got to find a way to tell it that isn't too dreadful, basically. And by that, I mean, you know, obviously, hopefully you'll tell it well, but it's just got to be a story that people are willing to sit through. Because, you know, if you're going to, you know, let's say you're going to put a YouTube video up, you're doing a YouTube thing. If you put a video up that's just all doom and gloom and terrible, you know, depressing statistics, well, who's going to sit through that? But if you make it fun and interesting and drop some of this stuff in by the by as part of the story, then that's how you sell it to people. As they say, you've got to sell the sizzle. <laughs> yeah, you have to fulfill their desire to feel in addition to their desire to learn as well. But you have to like balance that without being too heavy, like you mentioned. That's a tough line to walk. And the second question I had for you is that like, I remember reading in class about like a modular phone, but again, going back to what you said earlier, that kind of seems like a five years thing where uh, they'll get to it in five years. Uh, but <laughs> I, I guess like going into it, as consumers, like Apple is knowingly making it harder for us to repair the phone and creating this really complex warranty so we can't go around them. Is there really much we can do as consumers? Uh, because it's only getting harder. They're only making tinier screws. They're only making it harder to get to the battery. And it's seeming like they want to do it so you spend more money and not care about their recyclability at all. I think the general move is towards where we want to be. I think, you know, if we talk about, you know, okay, where I want to be, I want to have that modular phone so I don't end up with a phone that's sort of only partially usable because I have to carry around every time I go out, I have to carry like not one, but usually two kind of spare batteries just to plug in. So I want that, but I still like my Apple. I'm, a, you know, I'm wedded to Apple. You know, I'm full on. I'm a full <laughs> Apple fanboy. I'm sat here with an iPad. There's an iPad. There's a, a brand, you know, I've just upgraded my MacBook, got an iPhone here. So I'm I'm wedded to Macs, but by the same token, I would love them to be even better than I think they already are. And I would jump on that opportunity. So what do we do? I mean, you know, you know, you can communicate the problem, which is what I do in my own small way. You can legislate the problem. I mean, you know, in the UK, uh, in the EU. They've just legislated for a commonality of charger legislation so that basically USB-C will now become the, the standard charger system. The idea being that it means you don't need to always buy with every product you buy. You just don't need a, another charger pack so that you could just use the old one. So you just don't need because, you know, every time I buy a phone, I get a new charger. Great. Well, I don't really need that many chargers. I think I've got a drawer full of them. So there is that sort of thing as well, sort of legislation and pushing legislators to do that and to bring that sort of stuff in. But that's really difficult because you're pushing uphill. But, you know, we can see now that big tech companies are beginning to hear, you know, what people want. And they're, it's going in the right direction, I think. It's just going to take five years, like everything. <laughs> On to the final section of the inner electronics. One of the most critical parts of the phone itself are these silicon chips that play such a large role as it's considered the brain of the device. What characteristics make silicon such a unique, effective material within our smartphones? So silicon, 
sits in a very special part of the periodic table. If you look at your periodic table, you sort of conjure it in your mind. You've got the the noble gases on the right hand side. And then immediately next to the noble gases, you've got your non-metals, which kind of sort of form a triangle at the top, on the top right. And then to the left of them and below the, the diagonal of the triangle, you're into metals. And then you're over to the other side, you're in through the transition metals and lanthanides, actinides, and then you end up with the alkali earths at the other end. Anyway, but the point is that diagonal line between the metals and the non-metals, you get what are known as metalloids, which is a horrible <laughs> word. They should have come up with a better word than that, metalloids. Metal-ish. Metal-y, I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, and it's not, it's a bit fuzzy, the line. If you look at it, it's not a nice, neat, it's not like some things in, on the periodic table. It's not kind of like, you know, kind of a nice, neat row diagonally going at 45 degrees. There's sort of, you know, it kind of bibbles up and down and summering, and depending on which version you look at, sometimes some elements are included and some not included. And so it's a bit vague, but these are elements that are, that have some metallic properties and also some not metallic properties. The key one being electrical conductivity, how conductive they are. And silicon sits in that group. So it's just below carbon. And and because it's just below carbon, because it can make the number of bonds it can, you can create sort of linked crystal structures. But it, by adding in other metalloids, you can change its conductivity. You can sort of turn the conductivity on and off. And it's just like with our little, you know, with the LCD, you need to be able to turn on and off things in a computer using electricity. And with silicon and a bit of cunning, if you go back to, you can basically make a switch that you can turn on and off with electricity. And it's because of its sort of adjacency to the metals, but also the non-metals. It's because it's in that gap between the two that we use that. And if you look at the other things they use to dope silicon chips, you know, they use things like antimony, gallium to dope them. And they're all in that same group of metalloids. So it's really, that's all it comes down to. It's they have that very specific property. And what exactly does doping do or like, how does it improve it? Doping is all about whether or not you have sort of extra electrons or or electron holes. So vacancies for electrons. And then it's about by applying a current, you can essentially move electrons or the holes it gets a bit fiddly, between different parts of your layered system. And again, it's about kind of creating these very fine layers, which are laid down photographically, that allow you to build up individual transistors, electronic switches. And then, you know, obviously on a microchip, you've got, God, I don't know how many fit on these days. You'd have to, I'd have to pull up Moore's law to check it out, but billions probably of individual transistors that then give you your processor. Yeah, I, I remember our classes with like N-doped and P-doped semiconductors affecting conductivity. And everything. Yeah, I, I must admit, it's one of those things I have to look it up again, just to sort of refresh my memory. It's been a long time since I looked at that. Because I, th- I thought about, I was trying to do, I wanted to talk about that, you know, in front of an audience, sort of on a, as part of a stage show, as part of a performance. And it's really hard. It's just really, really hard to do anything that doesn't just become a, a slideshow with a lecture, which I didn't want to do. So <laughs> I avoid it. I avoid talking about it because it's just too complicated in some respects or just a bit too dry, maybe. We have like whole classes designated towards it. So trying to explain it in a minute is tall task. Yeah, well, you're, you're doing, if you're studying it, then I can't, you, you're, that's your own fault. You have to accept that. <laughs> 
Okay, so then we can we can circle back to rare earth metals because um, there's a specific one that I think is really interesting to talk about that I don't know a lot about myself. It's called neodymium. And I know that they're used in like all kinds of components like speakers, vibration motors, and even like the camera autofocus mechanism. So I was just wondering if you could uh, talk about that. It seems very versatile. Yeah, no, I love neodymium. So neodymium, um, it's a lanthanide. So it's it's one of the rare earth elements. So it's really quite an unusual element. It's quite, you know, you, you don't find much of it out there. It's it's quite difficult to hold, get hold of. It's not one that we are currently, you know, struggling to get hold of. It's rare, but it's not, and it's not a conflict element. So, you know, it's actually relatively, you know, it's, it's okay. We're, <laughs> we're good for our neodymium, no worries there. But when you combine it with a few other metals, you you end up with a compound, an alloy that is really good at being magnetized, at creating magnets. So you end up with these fantastically strong magnets. And you've all seen them, neodymium magnets. And they're, they're usually sort of very shiny on the outside. They're quite brittle. If you get two big neodymium magnets and you let go and they kind of crack together, they invariably shatter. The interesting thing, obviously, you don't get a kind of an explosion of fragments because, of course, magnetism holds it all together. So you just but you end up with this sort of mess of tiny little bits that you can't then pull apart because they're all kind of stuck together. And you get them in a lot of, um, you know, like little kind of toys and things, sort of executive toys. Also, your fridge magnets these days, most of them have got neodymiums on because your standard ferrite magnets are just rubbish in comparison. But because they're so powerful, it means that we can use them to do things that wouldn't have been possible without them. So obviously you go back to sort of, you know, the 19th century and you've got people like Faraday and Ersted and they discover the electromagnetic effect. They discover that the two things go hand in hand and we end up with electric motors, you know, solenoids and, and all these sort of wonderful devices that allow us to create motion from electricity. So we've got ways of turning on and off light. We've got ways of turning off on and off electricity using electricity. But now we've got a way of creating motion with electricity. And I think people don't really realize quite how many moving parts there are in your phone. And you mentioned it, the vibration alert motor is the classic moving part because it's literally a motor. It's a tiny, tiny little motor. It's about the size, if you pull open a phone, it's about the size, I reckon, of, say, a lentil, a kind of a brown lentil. So it's about five millimeters. What's that? Ooh, convert quickly into so what's that? that's um that's that's a fifth of an inch and a couple of millimeters deep uh if that tiny little little disc usually with a little sort of rubber coating on it with two wires coming out of it and if you could prise it open it's a bit tricksy but you can inside what there is is there's a tiny little rotating motor and made of plastic there's usually two little coils of wire tiny coils of wire which create the um you know is the coiled wire bit of the motor and then it's there is a, an offset weight so that the, the bit that rotates isn't balanced so when it spins around and it spins around at a hell of a speed it wobbles from side to side and that causes the vibration it's quite astonishing to see i mean given the weight of a phone it's not hugely you know they don't weigh much but they still weigh a reasonable amount compared to this tiny little component and yet that gives you the vibration alert and you'll know when it goes off, you can hear it kind of, I mean, you know, if it's sat on a table or something, you can sort of hear it from sort of three rooms away or something, this thing vibrating. And you can feel it when you're holding it quite clearly. And the only reason we can make that as powerful as it is to create that, that amount of vibration 
is because it's got neodymium magnets inside. There's a tiny little ring of neodymium magnet at the back, which creates the magnetic part of your motor. And you sort of, you can, you can't really pull that out because it'll just shatter, but you can sort of see that it's a magnet. If you open it up with a screwdriver, you can kind of, there's this tiny little incredibly strong magnet. And obviously the way to get a stronger motor is you either put in more voltage or you, you either increase the electrical component or you will increase the, the magnetic field strength. So this gives you an increased field strength so you can do more with it. So that's in there. And, you know, the only reason it works is because neodymium has this rather, you know, has this particular kind of electron arrangement within its structure that means it is readily magnetized. And then, as you say, you also find neodymium uh, magnets in, they're in the, uh, there's a little rectangular one usually in the, the speaker, which again is tiny compared. I mean, when you turn up your phone to full volume, you sort of, you can, you know, you can just plonk it on the table and wander around the room and hear it. But this, the speaker on it is, it's about a centimetre, maybe half an inch tops and about half that in, across. It's kind of a little flat job and it's got a little tiny disc in the middle and it kind of bounces up and down. It's an amazing piece of kit. And again, as you say, there's also ones in the, the camera so that you can focus the camera, which is something most people don't realise even happens. Is there any risk of it, since it's so brittle, of it breaking in any of those systems? No, I don't think so. They're, they're all, you know, very well contained and they're, they're, they're sufficiently small that, you know, the little sort of metal boxes they put in then contains the magnetic field, you know, it kind of sits within the metal coating, so to speak. So it, because obviously, you know, what you don't want is you don't want kind of huge kind of magnetic fields kind of getting in the way of all your electronics, you know, that'll stuff up your electronics, but they're, they're shielded within the little boxes they're put into, so to speak. So, um, yeah, they're not going to do anything. And I've not tried pulling one out and just playing with it as a magnet because they are very tiny. We're talking things kind of, you know, you know, millimetres, tiny, tiny, tiny little magnets, but they're just wicked strong magnets. Uh, and it's all because of this wonderful material, neodymium, and it's and a few other things they added. The last component we want to cover with you today is the use of plastics and mainly in their role as a casing for our phone. So I bet the majority of us have actually dropped it. I know I do almost on a daily basis. So it's clear that casing has to be able to withstand different types of conditions. What types of plastics are the most effective choices for performance and cost perspectives? And uh, how do we utilize those? I mean, you know, as you say, it's there's a lot of plastic, there's a lot of aluminium as well goes into the, the casings. You know, it's light, it's strong. It's, you know, going to survive most things that you throw at it as long as you're reasonably careful. But then there's, you know, the plastic bits of the casing as well. They're in there. Generally speaking, a lot of the plastic, I mean, if you think about, say, an iPhone, it's almost entirely either glass or pla- or metal on the outside. There's plastics on the inside holding stuff in place a little bit. Most of us then, like, wrap our phones in another case, let's face it, which then gives us that impact resistance. Most phones aren't built to survive drops onto say concrete or something like that. You know, you can drop it on the, you know, on your carpet or something like that and you're fine, but drop it onto something hard and you're stuffed as we all know. Here's my phone. I've got it on charge. Hold on. Here's my, <laughs> this is my phone here. It's a Nakadol phone. And it's in um, it, the casing that it's in is actually quite interesting as a material scientist It's in a thing called D3O casing, which is a non-Newtonian oh. system. So it's, it's, so if you remember your old um, corn flour or cornstarch um, mix, your oobleck, as it's called, 
by some people, you know, it's kind of a non-Newtonian. So it's a hard, it becomes stiffer the more you apply force to it. You can get casings that do that. This, this casing, like if you drop it, it becomes more rigid. Uh, I've actually been to the factory and messed around and dropped a phone from three meters onto a, a kind of a metal floor and it survived with the right, you know, packaging on it. Although admittedly that was with the, the, the company's PR person stood right behind me. <laughs> if it hadn't worked, <laughs> would I be telling you? I never would have made it out alive probably. But yeah, there are, there are all sorts of kind of funky um, plastic cases and sort of cool materials that you can wrap your phone in that have remarkable properties. I mean, wooden cases are pretty cool as well because wood has remarkable material properties, as I'm sure you know. And as a biologist, I'm always keen to promote but um not so easy for making phone cases out of so yes the plastics in there there are a remarkable number of hydrocarbons in your phone as well all over the place i mean the obvious one is the screen we've already talked about you know the liquid crystal which is a hydrocarbon and then you've got all these other plastics and bits and bats in there and the, you know the coverings on the wires and you know, your phone is full of, you know, carbon, hydrogen and oxygen. Yeah, I remember reading that polycarbonate is a common plastic used in phones because of what you mentioned, the high impact resistance and temperature resistance. And I think that is in part due to the fact that like it's a large pendant group. So that affects the rigidity and therefore the impact resistance. So um, it's just cool to see how, you know, the structure of these polymers play a role in, in their applications in like the casing of the phone. I mean, there's various ways you can, you can create polarized filters as well, but a lot of them are made from kind of long chain polymers that are then just, you know, stretched as they're made. And that then lines up all your polymers, you know, kind of in, a, in straight lines. And that then creates a polarizing filter so something as, as basic as that you know as you're extruding the, the the plastic or making your plastic sheeting it's then kind of stretched as it's cooling as it just as it comes out of the machine and you end up with a polarized filter so you know there's all sorts of clever things like that going on there as well it's not not all kind of weird freaky transition elements and lanthanides and actinides well i think that wraps up like all of the Subs, the main subsystems within our smartphones. So I just wanted to thank you for sharing all your knowledge with us today. And I found it super fascinating. I didn't know there was all these different types of materials and elements in our little phone that we carry around in our pocket every day. My pleasure. Here's one thing to, for you to go away with. The number of elements in, in a phone, on average, 38. Wow. 38. Which is a third more than a third of the entire periodic table. That is crazy. That is crazy, isn't it? And if you think about the number of elements in you, in a person, only about maybe 24, and that's including <laughs> super unused. Unless, of course, you've just eaten a mobile phone. <laughs> but a standard person, we're, we're like, we're not even close. The, the, the amount of sort of material science that goes into something as complicated as a phone, just astonishing, uh, the stuff that's in there. That's a great fun fact. Yeah, I'm going to keep that one. David's going to use that one. forever now. <laughs> He'll be dining out on that one for years. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. Cool. So thanks so much, Marty. My pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the It's a Material World podcast. If you enjoyed the show, consider subscribing on your favorite podcast app so you never miss another episode. David and I also created a career development guide for MSEs, which you can download for free using the link in the show notes below. If you have any feedback, we would love to hear it. We want to grow this show with our community's input, so you can message us via email or any of our social media platforms. Links will be provided in the show notes as well. 
We'll see you soon. And in the meantime, go change the world.